Let's complete the celebration. Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in verses 20 through 28, each in his own order. I hope that after we've studied this passage together today, that you have a clear understanding that you are intimately and directly connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will either be connected positively in the first resurrection or negatively in the second resurrection. So we look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. I want us to consider three things as we look at each in his own order. First, the Savior, who is called here in this passage, first fruit. However, now Christ has been raised out from the dead, first fruit of those having fallen asleep. Leviticus 23 gives the ritual of the offering of the first fruit. Those who first saw a sign of the harvest coming would go and take that and bring it, bring the sheaf to the priest, and the wave offering would be made before Yahweh, before the Lord. And the Lord receiving then there was there were other offerings offered as well but then the lord because of that because of the faithfulness of the people would guarantee this meant that the lord would guarantee a great and wonderful harvest this was the first thing they saw coming forth from the ground the first fruit to offer it before the lord as a wave offering was done in faith by the people and the Lord, in faith, would give them the great harvest that's to come. Christ here is called first fruit of those having fallen asleep. Death is a reality, of course. It's part of life. Death lays us all, in a sense, equal at the end of everything because everything that mattered in a material and a physical sense doesn't, doesn't, really, doesn't really matter at that point. The only thing that matters is how a person has dealt with life in a spiritual sense. It's a beautiful biblical phrase, fallen asleep. The physical body drops. It doesn't go about its work anymore when we die. It falls and goes into the ground, and there, in a physical sense, the body sleeps. Paul teaches us, he alludes to it in both 2 uh, uh, Corinthians and Philippians, and to literally quote him, he says, to, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's an intermediate state, we understand that. For the believer, that intermediate state is a state of bliss and wonder, glory, but it's also a state of anxiety in this sense. We anxiously await our resurrection, the glorification. 
And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he talks about how the dead in Christ will rise first. And when Christ comes, he brings with them those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So that means they're in an intermediate state and they're about to be happily, joyfully joined to a resurrected, glorified body. And then, of course, those of us who remain are caught up. We're raptured away. We're seized from impending danger because of the love of the Lord for his church. Now, physically the body rests, not resurrected yet, because the first one who is resurrected, the first fruit, Christ gives himself as a pledge, as a sign. He's the first fruit. He's resurrected never to die again, as, as, some, as some preachers and, and commentaries Reference those who had died and, and came back to life. They were resuscitated, but they died again. Christ is resurrected gloriously. And he is the pledge of all the others who are in him. So it says, Paul uses an illustration because the question is, how can this happen? Okay, one guy is resurrected. How does that have an effect on the rest of us? Well, it's simple. Use the analogy of Adam and then contrast it with Christ. For since by a man came death, also by a man came resurrection of the dead. For as indeed as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We can't deny physical death. And the only source for understanding why death is, of course, is the blessed and holy word of God. We understand that uh, within Adam comes the death of the rest of us. In Adam, all die. The curse of death came upon Adam. It has been passed to his seed, his progeny. All of us, all of us live. We're physical. We have physical beings as humanity because we're in Adam. Adam was the first one. Now Adam died. So here we are going through life. We get older and weaker, and finally we die. It's because the curse was placed on Adam, passed to the rest of us. The curse of Adam. So it's easy to understand then if we all die, and we do, and we're all in Adam, and we are, then there is another federal headship, if you will, who is Christ. As surely as Christ has risen from the dead, so also all of us who are in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes and he says, the same spirit that raised Christ up from the dead will raise you up as well. Same power of God that resurrected Christ will resurrect those of us who are in Christ. So, First of all, the Savior. With regard to the order of the resurrection, first of all, the Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the first fruit. But then, the saved, those of Christ. Each, however, in his own order. Say that word order, tagmati, in the original Greek text that was written. It's a military term. There is an order to the first resurrection to those who are intimately joined to Christ 
by faith, by salvation. And we have an order. We have an order in the resurrection. Jesus was first. The preeminent one, the firstborn out from among the dead, Paul writes to the Colossians. Each of us have a place. If we are believers in Christ, we have a place in the order of resurrection. Those of Christ at his coming. Christ the first fruit, then those of Christ at his coming. You see that? Of Christ. Now that's not prepositional as it would be in, in Christ. It's articular and in the genitive in the Greek, which means that it is joined to Christ. So this is a more eternal glimpse of those who are believers in Christ. To say that those of Christ at his coming will be raised joins us to Christ himself. And Christ, of course, entered into an eternal covenant with the Father. And in John 6, Christ said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will never, and of those who come to me, I will never, ever cast them out. Remember that triple, it's a triple negative in the Greek. It's not good English, but it's wonderful Greek in theology. Never, ever, ever cast him out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, he continues on in John 6. That of all he gives to me, I will lose not one. But raise him up at the last day. The point is this, in some time that we cannot imagine, in some realm that is too high and far away from us, God the Father gave this gift to God the Son, His own. He gave Him His own, written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Now, that means that those of Christ, and we're talking Old Testament, New Testament, all the way to the end, have always been of Christ. That's why here the Holy Spirit of God leads him to be in the articular genitive rather than prepositional. I hope you follow me on that because that's theologically a very important point. So, those of Christ. Now, that sweeps across the panorama of time. In my view, the first ones after Christ, the first fruit to be resurrected, will be the church of the Lord Jesus, which initiates what is called the first resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who remain caught up puzzle to be seized from impending danger. To me, that's the rapture of the church. And then after that, tribulation. According to Daniel 12, at the end of the tribulation, at the end of those seven years, the 70th Shabbat, the 70th Shabuah, the 70th Heptad, the 70th seven of Daniel, 69 of which have passed, the 70th yet to be concluded. At the end of that, the resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation saints, Daniel chapter 12. Then the kingdom, Revelation, what, 20 and so? The thousand years to rule and reign with Christ. The 1,000 years. So there are some, 
Matthew 25, there are some who are alive at the end of the tribulation who are saved. The only ones living are saved because everybody else got wiped out. And they are consigned to Hades until the final resurrection. So those who are living in their bodies enter into the millennial kingdom. They're the sheep. The goats were put to death. Enter into the kingdom, Christ said to them. It's been prepared for you by my Father. So they go into the kingdom in their mortal bodies and they procreate. They have babies. They raise families. The original curse is removed and so they can live and live and live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's nothing to say that some of them don't die accidentally or, or whatever. As wonderful as the millennial kingdom is, Isaiah is careful to point out that some people die, especially those who are cursed by a death penalty even then when they don't go to Jerusalem at their appointed time to worship and learn from Christ himself. But there are some certainly who would have died in righteousness. And then at the end of that millennial reign, Christ teaches us in the Revelation that the old devil is loosed for a little season from his chains in Hades. And there are those who have never been exposed to the temptation of the old devil. Fall into sin. There's a brief rebellion at the end of those thousand years. And Christ reigns victorious. All of the best that Satan could do fell short. And the final great war is fought. Not Armageddon, but the, the war at the close of the kingdom age. And that's the end. So when you have those righteous ones resurrected at the end of that, that concludes the first resurrection that began with Christ the first fruit and continued to that time. Then the end. Now what happens? He goes right on. When he shall hand over the kingdom to God and Father, when he shall have abolished all dominion and all authority and power, there's nothing left. He, Christ, has completed the work of redemption. Now we think of salvation in a personal sense as well we should. But absolute salvation is almost incomprehensible. It's something far greater than just personal salvation. It includes personal salvation. But it's the salvation of everything that's going to have to include even the universe, the time-space continuum, everywhere, everything, anything that has ever contained sin has to finally be abolished and destroyed. Thus we read in the Bible that there is a new heaven and a new earth. Peter writes that the elements will melt with fervent heat. Fast forward then to the end the great white throne is set up in the Revelation, the latter part of the Revelation. And from his presence, the one who sat on that white throne, who is Christ, from his presence, earth and heaven flies away. It's just deconstructed. It's destroyed. 
Death and hell give up the dead that's in them. This is the second resurrection. Hades, the abode, the nether world of the wicked dead. The books were opened. And the book was opened, which is the book of life. And all who are not found in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. Which was prepared, according to Isaiah, for the devil and his angels. But it accommodates all of the wicked dead. Second resurrection. Because the all-conquering, victorious, resurrected Christ is seated on that throne. That's why I said at the beginning of this thing, your resurrection is vitally connected to his, either in the first or the second, positively or negatively. So he says, then to the end, when he should hand over the kingdom to God. Okay, so the, the kingdom is finished. What's happened? Well, he came to close the tribulation, defeated the Antichrist, and all the nations of the earth sets up his kingdom. The world is prosperous. It's it's filled with abundance and happiness unlike the world has ever known for a thousand years until Satan is loosed for a little season. Chaos, in a sense, ensues in the lives of some in certain parts of the glorious kingdom. That's the last effort. That's the last time the last temptation, the last sin, and it's destroyed by Christ. This completes his redemptive work, you see. So then what is left? He brings the kingdom to God and Father when he shall have abolished all dominion and all authority and all power. That would be the authority and power of hell and those of the earth who have ever raised themselves up in rebellion against his rule, his reign, his throne. So then, I lost my last slide. I can do it without it, but it'd be good. This is it. Well, I thought we got raptured there for a minute, and my slides were raptured. The salvation. So that God may be all in all. For it behooves him. This is his job. Whose job? The resurrected Christ. To reign until he shall have put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Great white throne, the church seated with Christ. Joint heirs, co-regents with the king of kings who completes his work of redemption. Okay, so all of the kingdoms have been defeated. The only thing left is the prospect of death, an enemy, how we despise death. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Second resurrection, 
All of the wicked dead now will stand before their Lord. They're executed. They're cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. On down in 1 Corinthians, though, he writes that the mortal will be clothed upon with immortality, the corruptible, the decay, will be put away and will be clothed upon with strength and honor that can never decay. But that's not true of all of those who then are forced to stand. Death and hell gave up the, the dead that were in them. Now that's the end of death, you see. That's the end of the grave. The only ones left are the wicked dead, and that's the end. And he forces the issue. Christ, in all of his power, calls them forth to stand before him, and death now, in a physical sense, is over. One last thing, though, the second death. Eternal death. To die eternally. To be in the process of dying and decay forever. It's awful. The last enemy to be abolished is death. First resurrection had been completed. Now the second resurrection is completed. The grave is irrelevant. The threat of death, rebellion, it's all gone. Christ has completed the work of redemption. And by the will of the Father, he is all-powerful. So then, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it may be said that all things have been put in subjection, it is evident that the one having put all things in subjection to him is accepted. Of course, he doesn't put the Father under subjection. Now, when all things shall have put in subjection to him, been put in subjection to him, then also the Son himself will be put in subjection to the one having subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. This is ultimate supremacy. In time and space, since creation, God, the Almighty One, has demonstrated himself, his redemptive work, by coming forth to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the work of redemption, God, the Father, establishes his will. God, the Son, executes it. God, the Holy Spirit, makes it happen on an individual basis and gives the power of God, the very power from God, the Holy Spirit, into our lives. But for God to demonstrate himself, although God is forever and always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now, with all things subjected and death no more, God is all in all. 
I cannot describe it. I can't paint a picture of it. I just know it's going to happen. That at this infinitely wonderful moment in time, when the second resurrection is gone and death and the grave are irrelevant, never to even be thought of or threatened again, and the redemptive work of Christ is over. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, His will has been accomplished. And all is in all. And because of Christ and the power of His resurrection, he has joined us to this forever and ever and ever. When it says that God may be all in all, I'm part of the all and you are too. If you're in Christ. The glorious order of the resurrection that leads us to the ultimate Supremacy and blessing of God Almighty. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. If you will admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and call on him to save you, confessing your sin. He'll save you because the word of God says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In a moment, we'll stand and sing our song of invitation. If you're here today without Christ and there's any flicker of a doubt that you're not all and in all with God and you don't have a part of that first resurrection, you come to Christ today and be saved. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian and God leads you to come and be a part of Shiloh. We'll take care of all the details of church membership if that's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation as only you can. Use it as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, okay? Would you come?